Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. This is our fourth time to look at the same text. I don't know if you've ever had a pastor that did that. Um, but we are going to be looking at this for the fourth time. But before we do, and before we read the text this morning, I wanted to just say, you know, I am once again struck, just as I've been studying this sermon, uh, for this sermon series, and I've, as I've studied this parable, I've been struck in a fresh way that Jesus was an amazing storyteller. I mean, imagine that someone who could spend five sentences telling a story could generate this much um, truth and, and this much uh, application for our lives today, 2,000 years later. So Jesus was an amazing storyteller. Uh, so here we are 2,000 years later. We're still mining the riches of insights and applications from the parable of the Good Samaritan. And that's just one of the stories that Jesus told. And I want to just really encourage you that if, if this uh, series through this particular sermon, uh, th through this particular text, has been an encouragement to you, I want to encourage you to read it again for yourself, uh, to go back through it for yourself and think and, and pray and ask the Lord to continue to help you see where specifically in your life do these things uh, uh, resonate and, and, and what, are the, what are the applications for your own life. Uh, I try to draw some applications from the text uh, to, to give to you, um, and I, I pray that those have been helpful. But really, ultimately, it's not my words. It's the Holy Spirit of God working in each of us to help us to see what it is that we are to do as a result. I hope that this final sermon in the series will help us to put these things into practice for ourselves. So, Luke 10, 25 through 37. Let's read it uh, once again. Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he asked him. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told him. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? <clears throat> Jesus took up the question and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers. The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. As we look at this text, we always uh, focus on the Good Samaritan, and rightfully so. But when Jesus told about the Good Samaritan, he was doing something to play a contrast in the mind of the legal expert, the scribe, 
who was, who was testing him. He used the Samaritan in such a way as to be a teaching tool. Um, and so what I want us to do is not so much focus in on the Samaritan this final week, but to focus in on the priests and the Levites. And of course, much has been said in other commentaries, in other sermons, and, and many other times that we've probably heard this told about why the priests and the Levite didn't stop. Why did they pass by on the other side? Maybe it was uh, out of fear. Maybe it was because they didn't want to be unclean. Uh, regardless of the reasons, we want to focus on the priests and Levites for a reason, because in the same way that Jesus was intentional about introducing a Samaritan, which was the shock factor, in introducing the Samaritan was like the drop-the-mic moment for this story. It was kind of like out of left field. It was something that the expert in the law would not have expected. But just as he was intentional about introducing a Samaritan, Jesus was also intentional about showing us that a priest saw a half-dead man, and rather than showing compassion, he passed by on the other side. And in the same way, a Levite saw the half-dead man, and rather than showing compassion and helping, he passed by on the other side. There was a reason why Jesus used a priest and a Levite. Why didn't he use a Pharisee? Why didn't he use a Sadducee? Why didn't he use a scribe? Why didn't he use a business person? Why didn't he use anything? He used a priest and a Levite because throughout and really in the recent history of the Jewish people, especially uh, in the last maybe five or six hundred years of Jewish history, as you read in, in the Old Testament scriptures, priest, Levite, and fill in the blank was used over and over again in the Old Testament as sort of a, a, a formula. And it was always priest, Levite, and the people. Let me illustrate this in Ezra 10, verse 5. Then Ezra got up and made the leading priests, Levites, and all Israel take an oath to do what had been said. So they took the oath. Priests, Levites, and all the people is, there's a, there's a kind of a fancy term, and I don't even know, I'm not an English you know, I'm not proficient with this kind of stuff. I think the term is merism, where the first and the last means everything, like everyone is included. So when you say alpha and omega, that's the first letter of the alphabet, and it's the last letter of the alphabet. And what we mean by the alpha and the omega is not just the beginning and the end, but everything in between. All right, when we say, uh, when we say, um, from uh, from opening, uh, what's the phrase? Opening back to final out, or whatever it is. Uh, we know that we're talking about the entire baseball game. Uh, maybe you didn't know that, and maybe I butchered that, that particular one. But the point is that this is the whole thing. It's talking about everything. And when the formula, priest, Levite, and all the people was used, it meant everyone, all the entire nation. And so we have priests and Levite, and let me give you another one in Nehemiah 8.13. On the second day, the family heads of all the people, along with the priests and Levites, assembled before the scribe Ezra to study the words of the law. In other words, everyone was there. No exception. Everybody was there. And so we had the priests and the Levites, and what would logically come next was the people. All right. And so when Jesus uses the priests and the Levites, it's important 
for you and I to understand more about the priests and the Levites because the scribe didn't need this explanation. All right, the expert in the law who came to test Jesus didn't need to hear what you and I are about to hear, what I'm about to share and convey with you. Because this was common. This was everyone knew the priest and the Levite. They knew their role. They knew how they were uh, uh, selected. They knew what they did. They knew where they lived. They, they knew everything about priests and Levites. But you and I don't know everything about priests and Levites. So let me just share the highlights. So a priest was someone who oversaw all of the practices and all of the services of the temple. This included the most important part of the temple, and that was the sacrifices. The sacrifices were, you know, the lambs that were brought, the, the different animal sacrifices, and the different uh, produce and, and, and grain offerings that were brought to the temple were overseen by the priest, and the priest would make the sacrifices. They would slaughter the animals. They would drip the blood in, in, in whatever ways that they were required to do. The priests were the holiest of all the people. They were the ones who were supposed to uh, uh, guide the worship of God through the temple and through the sacrificial system. And so the corporate worship of the people was overseen and facilitated by the priests. And it even got to the point where the priests were not just spiritual leaders, but by the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, and certainly by the time of Jesus, the, the priests were also functioning in sort of a, a, a political role. Uh, you had the, the high priest, the chief priest, was a almost like a, a, a national leader who, who kind of interceded between um, the people and God. And so the priests were the most important members of that society. They had a crucial role in governing the, the, the sacrifice and the corporate worship of the people. Now another minor, a lesser role, not a minor role, but a lesser role, but part of what the priests did is they, in the temple, they collected tithes. The priests were responsible for the collection of tithes. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. And they maintained the temple. So they made sure that things weren't crumbling down. They made sure that the, the temple was in good condition. So this was all a matter for the priests. But the Levites were there to help. Now the Levites came from a tribe... And um, the Levites were, uh, were there uh, to assist the priests. And so everything that happened in the temple, the Levites were there to assist. They weren't in charge, they weren't the priests, but they were there as, as sort of servants and helpers uh, to, to take care of that. And so they also had a role in the collection of the tithes, and not just collecting the tithes, but the Levites were also in... in um, uh, Responsible for distributing the tithes either to the priests to, to kind of like pay them or, or to, to provide for their care um, or to the poor. The tithing was for that as well. So it's interesting because when we see in Scripture, and the, and you'll understand why I'm bringing up a tithe here in a minute. When we see in Scripture the, the, the command to tithe, in the temple, these priests and Levites would have been responsible for collecting it and distributing it the way it was supposed to be done. 
Now, there were three tithes in the law. The law told the people that they were supposed to set aside 10% as a sacred tithe. It says in Numbers 18, 21, look, I have given the Levites every tenth in Israel, or a tithe in Israel, as an inheritance in return for the work they do, the work of the tent of meeting. In other words, the Levites and the priests were paid, not necessarily in monetary form, but they were paid in goods. Um, they would bring a tenth of their wheat crop. They would, they would bring a tenth of their, uh, of their livestock to the temple. And some of that livestock was sacrificed. Others of that livestock was, was slaughtered for food or for, for wool. And so this is how the, the priests and the Levites were supported. And this is how the temple was maintained, was through this sacred tithe. But there was another tithe that was required by law. And this was for a pilgrimage festival savings plan type of tithe. This was kind of like, okay, you've got your tithing and you've got your savings. All right, so you, you've got your sacred, uh, you, you've got your sacred tithe and you've got your savings tithe. Deuteronomy 14, 22 through 26. Each year you are to set aside a tenth of all the produce grown in your fields. You are to eat a tenth of your grain, new wine, and fresh oil and the firstborn of your herd and flock in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he chooses to have his name dwell so that you always learn to fear the Lord your God. Let me just stop there for a minute. So, so what he's saying here is that, of course, you're supposed to go about your daily routine and, and all that, but, but a tenth of your wheat and a tenth of your livestock and a tenth of, of all that you grow is intended for you to eat at this festival in the presence of the Lord. This only happened in Jerusalem. It's called a pilgrimage festival because some people, of course, did live in Jerusalem. But then there were people who lived all throughout the nation that they didn't go to Jerusalem every day. They needed to save up in order to go to Jerusalem and to have these festivals in the presence of the Lord. See what it says in verse 24. But if the distance is too great for you to carry it, since the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far away, he's talking about Jerusalem uh, from you, and since the Lord your God has blessed you, then exchange it for silver. Take the silver in your hand and go to the place the Lord your God chooses. You may spend the silver on anything you want, cattle, sheep, goats, wine, beer, or anything you desire. You are to feast there, Jerusalem, in the presence of the Lord your God, and rejoice with your family. Now, Jerusalem, not yet, because this is Deuteronomy. But the point is that wherever that tent of meeting is, that's where you're going to go. And ultimately, this was Jerusalem is where they were supposed to go. So they would have their feast. They would have their festival. And people would come from all over for, for example, the Passover festival. And so this was almost like a vacation savings plan that you're supposed to, by law, you are required as a Jewish Man or woman, as a family, you are required to put aside 10% for this purpose. Now, it's interesting because there's a third tithe. And this was a tithe that was collected every three years. Deuteronomy 14, 28 and 29 says, At the end of every three years, bring a tenth of all your produce for that year and store it within your city gates. Then the Levite who has no portion or inheritance among you, the resident alien 
the fatherless and the widow within your city gates may come, eat, and be satisfied. And the Lord your God will bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. So when we talk about a tithe, a lot of times we think, well, that's 10%. That's what a tenth, that's what a tithe means. But do you realize that the law required that people set aside 10% to the temple, 10% to your own savings so that you can go on these pilgrimage festivals and be in Jerusalem at least once a year, and 10% every three years that you were to set aside within your own city's gates. If you don't live in Jerusalem, whatever city you're in, that's the, that's the town uh, that you're going you're gonna to make a collection of the wheat, of the barley, of the, uh, of the grains, or whatever, and you're going to store it every three years. You're going to give that offering 10% from that year, and the poor... The, the widow, the orphan, the resident alien, and, in fact, the Levite who lives among you would be sustained by that offering. Now, this is interesting because when you live according to the law, um, the, the law was, was given to, for, us to, for, for the people to tithe in this way. Now, this created a standard of care uh, and, and of blessing within the Israel nation, within the Jewish people, that was uh, above and beyond. It was unprecedented among the nations of the world. There was no one else who had this level of care for the foreigner or, or for the widow or for the orphan than the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was setting a, 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 a principle, sort of a... Um, a way of, uh, of giving and caring for people that was unprecedented in the ancient world. And so as we look at this role of the priests and Levites, as they were to not only be sustained by this giving, but also collect it and distribute it, um, it's an amazing thing that when they see someone in need, it should have been the first impulse of a priest or the first impulse of a Levite to help a fellow countryman in need. But here's the thing. The law did require this, but the problem is when you live according to the law, you might not expect to do more than what you are required to do. And you can't really call it generosity if you're doing it out of obligation to the law. And so what priests and Levites and the people often did is, for one thing, they probably neglected the tithes. They didn't always give fully. Um, they were living by the law. And we know the record of Israel. We know the record of the Jewish people. And we know our own hearts that a lot of times what we are expected to do or required to do, we don't really want to do. And our heart is not necessarily in it. And so a lot of times these tithes, these... Um, these offerings and this level of care was not optimal. It wasn't where it should have been um, because it was done out of obligation. It was done based on the law. And so that's where the Good Samaritan comes in. And this is where you're expecting to hear a commoner or a person, a Jewish man or a woman, uh, somebody coming along that you wouldn't have expected. Um, you know, the priest and the Levite passed by, but now this this other Jewish brother or this tribe member 
uh, comes along. But no, we see what Jesus does here in introducing a Samaritan. We see the good Samaritan, and through him we see a great Savior. So look back at our text, because of course the priest passed by on the other side. Of course the Levite passed by on the other side. But it says in verse 33 that a Samaritan on his journey came up to him. And when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. All right? And so this is the story of the Good Samaritan. We see that this is a Samaritan who was an enemy of the Jews. Someone the Jews would have despised. And yet he is the one that Jesus says comes along and ministers to the need of the person in the ditch. And so the good Samaritan stopped. The good Samaritan came over to the place of, of pain and suffering. The good Samaritan is the one who came and showed compassion. It's the good Samaritan who paid the expenses and lifted this man up out of his pain and out of his agony. He bandaged his wounds and took care of him and took him and paid all of his expenses. And so it's through the Good Samaritan that we not only see our need for a great Savior, but we see the way in which our great Savior showed himself to be great. Because we have a great Savior who saw my need and saw your need and came over. He came left the riches of heaven and made himself of no reputation and came and took the form of a man, of, in, indeed of a servant, and came and, and died on a cross for our sins. And so this is our great Savior who saw that you were dead in your sins. And he saw that you had a great need, that you couldn't lift yourself up out of the pit. And, and so he comes over and he binds your wounds. He brings you to life and, and, and nurses us to health. And so this is our great Savior. And this is what the Good Samaritan story introduces to us. Now, it was hidden from the expert in the law because he didn't come desiring to know the truth. But it's revealed to us because we realize we need a Savior. See, the expert in the law, the reason why Luke recorded this story was not so that the expert in the law would one day, maybe later on, read this account and be convicted. We don't know anything else about this expert in the law. We don't know if he ever came to Christ. We don't know if he ever trusted in Jesus as his Lord and Savior. We don't know anything about the expert in the law past this story. But the reason why Luke records it is so that you can know this story. When Jesus says to go and do the same, well, the expert in the law didn't go and do the same, did he? The expert in the law left. The, the expert in the law didn't continue following Jesus. But this story is given to us by Luke. It's recorded for us in this chapter so that you and I will learn the lessons from the Good Samaritan. That we are to go and do likewise. Uh, that not only do we see our need for a great Savior who saw me and lifted me up out of the, of the pit, but now I should go and do likewise, that I should go and bring the message of, of hope and, and the message of salvation to others. In fact, um, it's interesting because 
ever since Jesus did what he did on the cross. Ever since Jesus died for our sins and then rose again on the third day. And ever since Jesus talked with his disciples and then ascended into heaven. Ever since then, the body of Christ has been continuing to do all that Jesus began doing when he was here on earth. Of course, the, the, the most important thing Jesus did was he died for us. And we don't continue doing that. We point people to Jesus who did that. But all the compassion that Jesus showed, all the teaching, all the ways in which Jesus came and loved and served the least of these, we are to continue to love and serve the least of these because we are the body of Christ. And so I want you to see the rest of the story. See, we have the Good Samaritan here in Luke chapter 10, but we know the rest of the story, don't we? We know that Luke went on to write the book of Acts, and this was the rest of the story. The rest of the story was not only the story of what Jesus did to show himself to be the great Samaritan, the great Savior, the one who would do uh, abundantly more than what this Samaritan did in this story. We see that as the rest of the story, but we also see the, the continuation, the, the way in which the body of Christ began to model this and exhibit this in the, in the church. See, the body of Christ is another way of referring to the church, that this local body is a body of believers. And of course, we know that Jesus, watch what happens, and, and this is why I love what uh, the, this, this way of referring to the church as the body of Christ is because Jesus is not in Bashor in the flesh. Right? Jesus is not in Bashor in the flesh, but because Calvary Baptist Church exists in Bashor, Jesus Christ is in Bashor in the flesh. Does that make sense to anybody? I mean, this is the body of Christ. And it's not just us, not just Calvary Baptist Church. There are other faithful brothers and sisters who are in local bodies, local congregations throughout, you know, Bayshore and Suffolk County and the rest of, of this region. And we, we praise God for them because we have been placed here to be the hands and feet of Jesus. We celebrate communion once a month because this is the broken body of Christ that we remember. And there is never a time when the embodiment of Jesus Christ is ever more present and ever more real and ever more tangible in Bashor than when we break bread and commune together with one another in remembrance of him. And so here we are. We are the body of Christ. So let me just give you a quick flyover view of the history of the, of the body of Christ. If you want, you can turn to Acts chapter 4. Because I love that this is very early on. Just after Jesus has ascended into heaven. And just after the Holy Spirit has descended and, and, and empowered the disciples of Jesus to be bold evangelists and bold witnesses on his behalf. This is a couple of chapters after that happens. It's Acts chapter 4, verse 32. I want you to see what happens with this group of people, with the body of Christ. 
Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. And no one claimed any that any of his possessions was his own. But instead, they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. I mean, this is a story. This is kind of an example of the Good Samaritan in the flesh. See, the Good Samaritan was a made-up person that Jesus told this story. It was kind of a, a fable. It was something, it was a parable. It was something that was made up that Jesus used to teach a lesson. But this, ever since the Good Samaritan and ever since the cross of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ has continued to live out the way uh, the, the principles of the Good Samaritan. And I want you to notice something. The priests and the Levites and the people were commanded to give these tithes each year. 10% for sacred purposes, 10% for your own personal savings plan so that you can go on the pilgrimage festival, and 10% every three years to be collected so that the resident alien, the widow, and the orphan can be cared for, and the Levite. But now here is a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, who is, uh, who is now selling his own land, um, which he must have gotten in some way, uh, a field that he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so here is a Levite who is, uh, is giving what he owns so that others' needs can be cared for. And, and I want you to notice something. When you are going to the temple and you are required to bring the first fruits of your, um, of your field, you're, you're required to bring a tenth to the temple. You have to carefully measure out how much to bring. And you hope that you don't cheat God a little bit, and you, you hope that you don't, you know, like you don't want to give too much because you know you, you want to keep the rest for yourself. And so when you go by this tenth or this tithe, uh, you have to measure it carefully. But I want you to ask this question of Acts chapter 4, and you can see the same thing in Acts chapter 2. But when you look at Acts chapter 4, was anyone counting? Was anybody taking a percentage was anybody trying to figure out to the, to the penny how much they owed? No, in fact, it's not a tenth. It says that these people, this group of believers, this body of Christ, it says they didn't claim that any of their possessions were their own, but freely distributed as any had need. Look at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. We're seeing the Good Samaritan in the flesh. 
in the body of Christ. Because in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, it says, In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews. These were two different languages, two different groups of people, two different backgrounds. Um, and and the, it says that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. Do you realize that the Jewish people had a system by which widows and orphans were cared for? So, so why is it that the national system doesn't seem to be working if now all of a sudden the church is taking responsibility for the widows and the orphans? Has that ever occurred to anybody? That, that you know, why are they taking care of the widows and the orphans? I thought that's what that third year tithe was all about. I thought we were supposed to collect all of our stuff by law, that we're required to do this. We're supposed to do this. And we're supposed to take the widows and the orphans and the resident alien and the Levites and, and take care of them and, and for the poor. And this is what that was all for. But really, clearly, no one is doing it. And so instead, in Acts chapter 6, there is this daily distribution that the apostles and, and the other believers are distributing as anyone, no one has a need. But it says here in Acts 6 that, that it looks like the Hellenistic Jews were being overlooked. Somehow just uh, management principles or just a way in which that they were being neglected. I don't think it was out of um, you know uh, any kind of racial tensions or anything like that, but they just were somehow being overlooked. It might have been a language barrier. Uh, but in whatever way, they were being overlooked in the daily distribution. And so the 12, I want you to notice this, it's because the 12 summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, what do you think they're going to say? Well, I know it's on the screen behind me. Do you think they're going to say, well, it's two different languages. Why don't we start two different churches? No, these are my brothers and my sisters in Christ. Yeah, we're, we're having a, a little bit of a language barrier, but let's work it out. It, it says they summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. That word daily distribution, distribution is koina, which is where we get koinonia, which is the word fellowship. The, the act of serving one another is, uh, is, is fellowship. Um, and, and so, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm mixing these up with Acts chapter 4. Uh, the, word, the word distribution is, um, it is the word where we get deacon, uh, diaconia. So I just completely apologize for butchering that right now. But the word is for, for serving and, and distributing. It's the word deacon. It's the word that we get uh, deacon from. And so they're basically saying, look, we can't, uh, we need to preach the word of God. We can't wait on tables. Um, so we need to serve the people in this way, and you serve the people in this way. We'll serve the, the people spiritually, and we'll appoint these men who can serve the people practically. And I want you to notice that because they did this, because they brought this together, uh, it says in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and, I love this, a large group of priests became obedient 
to the faith. It was because of this act of service. It was because of this practical matter that the spiritual matter could be cared for. When the physical concerns were taken care of, the uh, when the physical concerns were taken care of, the spiritual concerns were able to be taken care of. And I wonder if these priests began to uh, be converted and joined in with what was going on in the church because they're seeing the, the radical love and compassion that was being shown. That their system that was under the law, that they couldn't even scrape together enough to take care of these widows. But the church, out of an abundance of generosity, not counting nickel and dime, but just generously giving and sharing with all who had a need. That's what I was going to say before, is that that idea of sharing is the word uh, koina, which is where we get koina in. So I, I, won't, I won't do that again with, with those words. But let me, let me uh, <laughs> now that I say that, let me give you one more Greek lesson. And this one I'm not going to butcher, because this one is really important. Because as you can see, the, the church, the body of Christ, is treating everyone with dignity and respect and loving them. They're taking care of those who have needs, and they're, they're giving of their possessions. They're, they're holding everything in common, and they're, uh, there's not one who has a need. And one of the things that they were doing is they were opening their own homes. There were a lot of sojourners that, that were there after the day of Pentecost, and so there were a lot of people who became disciples who lived elsewhere, but they opened their homes so that people could meet from house to house and in the temple complex. But it's interesting because they this included their own homes, which were open to extend hospitality to a weary traveler and, and really to perfect strangers, people they didn't know before, and people from different uh Places all around the Roman Empire who had come to Jerusalem and had been saved. And so I love, I'm going to put this on the screen, because the biblical word hospitality doesn't just mean to entertain your friends. That's what we often think. We're going to have a, a, a party and we're going to entertain them. That's hospitality. No, that's not what hospitality is. The word is philozenia, or love for strangers which is exactly the opposite of the word xenophobia, which is a fear of strangers. And politicians and pundits would have you practicing xenophobia, but Paul encourages us to practice philoxenia. It's completely opposite from what this world would have you and I to do. That someone of a different race or ethnicity, someone who has a different language, someone who is here for a short time or maybe isn't a citizen here, that we're supposed to fear them. That's what xenophobia is. That's what the world would have you do. But what Paul says and what the body of Christ did was they practiced hospitality, philoxenia. It says in Romans 12, 13, share with the saints in their needs, pursue hospitality. Hebrews 13, 2, don't neglect to show hospitality. Again, not entertaining friends, but loving strangers. Don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. Now, the body of Christ continues to do what Jesus told.
told us to go and do likewise. This parable of the Good Samaritan is continuing to reap benefits within the body of Christ. Because as we continue to love strangers and welcome uh, the orphan and the widow and the resident alien and to bring them in, into, even into our own homes, we are being the body of Christ. We're being the hands and feet of Jesus. And it's amazing because throughout history, we have seen that when this is done, the world is amazed. The world is going to expect you to fear strangers, xenophobia. But the world is going to be shocked when you philo, xenia, love strangers, practice hospitality. The Roman Emperor Julian, writing in the 4th century, he was upset by the progress of Christianity and of the church throughout the, the Roman Empire that was being planted and spreading like wildfire. Uh, because, and the reason why he was so upset is because it pulled people away from the Roman gods. There were, there were entire cults and, 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 and temples that were being shut down because the, the Christians had come into town and set up a church. There were you know, idols that were being destroyed and smashed in, in certain villages and towns throughout the Roman Empire because the church had come, because Jesus was there in the flesh, in the body of Christ. And so the Roman Emperor Julian was upset by this, and he said that the Christian faith has been especially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers. He said, it is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, the godless Galileans was a reference to the Christians, care not only for their own poor, but ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. Looking back on this time period, historians saw that this particular Roman emperor, Julian, um, you know, he actually began to try and institute some of the Christian practices of benevolence to try and revive paganism in the Roman Empire, and it didn't work. But he saw, this Roman emperor saw, that Jews would take care of their own, and pagans wouldn't take care of anybody, whereas Christians were willing to take care of anybody. They were putting into practice the good Samaritan. John Piper says, if we as a church he's writing in the 21st century, he says, if we as a church, indeed of the entire Christian movement, were gripped by the radical life and open-handed liberality that Jesus taught, and if we tasted the freedom from fear and greed that Jesus bought with his own blood, what an avalanche of mercy and missions and financial means would be released among us. Oh, what a responsibility we rich Americans have in this world of suffering and need. Do you know that right now it's estimated that in the U.S. church, Christians who are churchgoers give around the area of 3%. Now, by law, Jews were supposed to give, and I don't think they did, because they abandoned a lot of things in the law, but they were supposed to give 20%, and every third year they were going to give 30%, if you did the math with me while we were talking about that. So every third year they're giving 30%. U.S. 
Christians in the church today are giving about 3%, is one, one estimate. And the reality is that if every Christian in the U.S. did give 10%, then the U.S. church would have an extra $168 billion for service and missions. Now, to put that in perspective, the cost globally to give the entire world primary education, clean water, and basic health care and nutrition would cost only $28 billion. And if Christians in the U.S. church alone gave 10% of our income, we could, we could quadruple that amount. Maybe five times. I don't even know the math. And so here is the, the question that I have for, for you. And then I want to make a few more application points. Why would a follower of Jesus give less than what was required by the law? If we can't find it in our hearts to be generous, willingly, I, and I'm not saying you should tithe. I'm not saying you should give 10%. I'm not saying that you should give 20%. I'm not saying that you should give a certain percentage. Some people believe in a tithe and give a tithe willingly and freely. Maybe you're not there yet. Maybe the Lord hasn't prompted your heart to begin giving in such a way. But this is how the, the missionary movement has expanded for 2,000 years is because of the generosity of Christians that blows people's minds in the rest of the world. And if you want to be involved in that, then you can give. Right? If you don't want to be involved in that, then keep it to yourself. That's it. It's as clear as that. And if you as a Christian can't see yourself giving what was required by law for people to give, and you're under grace, you've experienced the riches of Jesus who by his riches he made himself poor so that, so that by his poverty you and I could be made rich, according to 2 Corinthians 9, then you and I are being a disgrace to grace by withholding our generosity when we can see a world of urgent spiritual and physical suffering. Now, I met a couple this week who are planting a Baptist church in on the Arabian Peninsula, which is notoriously a very difficult place to share the gospel. Um, it's not a place that too many outsiders can come in and, and, and share the gospel. This The husband is, uh, is um, from Great Britain and, and his wife is from the U.S. They met there in the United Arab Emirates. That's the nation that they, that they are there for. Um, and they are planting a Baptist church I can tell you their names later, but because this is recorded, I'm going to keep their names confidential. Um, and so I met them this week, and they both grew up in the United Arab Emirates, which is, as I said, on the Arabian Peninsula. It's surrounded by other Arabic countries that are extremely closed to the gospel, very hostile to the gospel. But remarkably, the UAE, the, the United Arab Emirates, this country where they are serving, is very tolerant 
of Christians. In fact, they are helpful in the planting. They'll, they'll uh, allow churches to be planted. And the reason why they, as an Arab country and, and predominantly Muslim country, are tolerant of Christians, the reason why they're tolerant of Christians is because a number of years ago, um, a, a number of medical missionaries came to the UAE and built hospitals and began serving people and helping people. They began caring for the physical and the spiritual needs of the Emiratis, which are an unreached people group there in the Arabian Peninsula. And they would, they would care for people regardless of their caste, which this country is, is, is uh, built on a caste society. And they would, they would even help people regardless of their nationality. In fact, many of the Emiratis and the sheikhs who are a part of the, you know, the sheikhs are the royal family. They're the, the ruling class. Um, many of the Emiratis and the sheikhs uh, are tolerant and even thankful for Christians because they themselves were born in these hospitals that were, that were built a number of years ago. And so when they're sick, they go to these hospitals. And so opening a hospital in Dubai made it possible for churches to be planted years later. And so now the UAE is a foothold. Dubai is a city of 300,000 people. It's a foothold in this hostile area of the world, this region of the world that most missionaries can't go. But because of medical missionaries and because of compassion that was shown, this country can be a foothold for the rest of the Arabian Peninsula. And so my friends are planting a church there in Dubai. Um, and so this leads me to realize that I think your neighbor and mine needs to see you as a good Samaritan. And sometimes they need to see a good Samaritan before they're willing to consider their need for a great Savior. So because there's a lot of people who are not only half dead physically because of troubles and strife and things going on in their lives, but they are all dead spiritually. And when we share uh, a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus, then that opens the door for us to tell them about the living water that will never end. So I want to encourage you to take these practical applications for this entire series. Let me just go through these very quickly and then we'll conclude. As I've thought through over the last four weeks, what lessons have we learned? What, what are we to do with all of this? Well, I hope you'll see the church in action. I hope you'll see what it looked like in the book of Acts as the gospel spread and as they cared for the needs of the people. And so the first application I want to give you is that you would search the scriptures. Search the scriptures for how we are to live as Christians and not just how we are to think. It's important for us to think biblically and to cross our theological T's and dot our theological I's. But it's also important for us to act to be obedient, to be doers of the word and not merely hearers of the word. So let's search the scripture. Start with Luke and Acts. 
And I would say kind of as a contrast to this particular point is not only search the scriptures, but avoid entertainment media and memes on social media that are going to tell you otherwise. I would recommend that you read a book. In addition to the Bible, read Christian worldview perspective books on current events. I have a number of books in my office on the topics of immigration and hospitality and uh, and, and, and poverty and human trafficking and pro-life and abortion and, 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 uh, and mission and, and global needs. I've got a number of books that I can recommend to you and I can let you read. Turn off the, the, the media that's entertainment driven and is geared to put a particular perspective that is antithetical to what the church's mission is in the world. So search the scriptures. Secondly, see the needs. If you're turning a blind eye to the needs of the world, and if you're turning a blind eye to your neighbor or to the people in this neighborhood because you don't want to be involved, you don't, you don't want to be a part of it, then I want to encourage you to, to stop what you're doing and see the needs, the urgent physical and spiritual needs in the world. I want us to, to not just think of how small our neighborhood is, but actually to expand our neighborhood and to see that the entire world is there for us to show love and concern for. Thirdly, I want you to act deliberately. There's a lot that's been said about random acts of kindness. I think we need to show deliberate acts of kindness. This needs to be a part of who we are, is that we are kind towards others. I would encourage you, just a sampling, volunteer at Soundview Pregnancy Services in Center Reach. You can volunteer at Lighthouse Mission in Central Iceland. Investigate ways to open your home for short-term help to children in the refugee resettlement program or to children in the foster care system. You can serve uh, the elderly at Sunrise Manor. And what I would encourage you in all of these things, this is just a sampling of ideas just to get you thinking, but in all of these things, prioritize people in need over people in power. Politicians want to get reelected. Poor people need your help. I didn't hear an amen at all on that one. Please help me out here. All right, poor people need your help. Number four, I want us to rethink our giving. I don't want you to leave with a sense of guilt because you haven't given 10% or 15% or 20% or whatever. I, I want us to just simply rethink our giving. Are we generous? Do we, do we count pennies or do we overflow in generosity in our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ and, and to the world in need around us? Let's rethink our giving. Look at what the New Testament teaches about giving and let's, let's act on it. Number five, pursue hospitality. Practice hospitality. Again, this is not just entertaining your friends, your best friends, having them over for coffee and enjoying the time. But no, give to those in need. Bring them into your home. Pursue hospitality. I mentioned that we'll be starting life groups. This is, this is going to be a context in which we can practice this on a weekly basis. That we are opening our homes and coming together as brothers and sisters inside a home, sharing a meal, and loving each other in hospitality. Number six, give the good news. Let's give the good news. See, all of these acts of service, they're good. 
But really, if they don't open the door for us to share the good news of the gospel, then we're not doing it right. They go hand in hand, good news and good works. Good news without good works isn't going to be listened to. But good works without the good news isn't going to last. So let's share the good news. And then finally, for all of us, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not yet a Christian, I want to encourage you to follow Jesus. This is the answer. He is the answer to everything. For my spiritual life, my sins can be forgiven through him, and it actually redeems and, and fixes the broken world around us. This is the answer. The scripture is the answer. The gospel is the answer. Jesus is the answer. I want to encourage you. If you have never placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, then today follow Jesus. Lord Jesus, we come to the end of this time that we've been meditating on this particular story that you shared parable of the Good Samaritan, and we are so thankful that even though we can't do anything to inherit eternal life, you have made it possible for us to inherit abundant, eternal life with you. So Lord, how could we not turn it back towards others and share the blessings that we've received. If, we, if you've shown us mercy, how can we not show mercy to others? If you have blessed us with, uh, with life, an abundance of life, and eternal life, how can we not help our brother or sister or our neighbor who is in need? Lord, help us as a church to become more like the body of Christ every day. I pray for each individual person, and I pray for myself, Lord, that you would conform me into the image of Christ. And that as you do that for each of us personally, we pray as a church that you would draw us into Christ-likeness. Help us to grow into the head of the church, and that is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We pray these things in your name. Amen.